0: hitting medical truth cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for join dr peter mccullough world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the mccullough report your life may depend on it
1: get real let's get loud on america loud talk radio this is the mccullough report and i'm dr peter mccullough it doesn't get any better than this get your popcorn and get a comfortable seat it was just announced moderna is suing pfizer over the messenger rna patents and the technology uh you couldn't actually draw it up any more obvious uh, than this any more self-revealing than this America wants to know where did these patents come from, who's involved, Moderna, the um, National Institutes of Health, the uh, engineering of SARS-CoV-2 and the spike protein in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the interplay between Stefan Bainzel, who is at BioMirU as a billionaire CEO, and how he helps the Chinese build the biosecurity uh, level four annexed to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and then joins Moderna in 2015. This all comes up. Interview with myself and Dr. Paul Merrick, one of the most published doctors in critical care uh, who's been a guest on the McCullough Report. We join Amanda Berlhanty and Carl Higby on Wake Up America on, uh, on Newsmax. Let's take a listen.
2: All right, folks, welcome back. Moderna has filed a patent infringement lawsuit against Pfizer mm-hmm. and Biotech over their new mRNA vac- COVID-19 vaccine. Now this is as Dr. Anthony Fauci announces he's gonna step down this coming December.
3: Thank yeah, so God. for more on this and to discuss it, we're gonna welcome the author of The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex, Dr. Peter McCullough, and a co-founder and chief scientific officer of Frontline COVID-19, Critical Care Airlines, Dr. Paul Merrick. Good morning to you both. Dr. Peter McCullough, let's get right to this right here with the big news from the vaccine market. Moderna suing Pfizer and BioNTech, just like Carl said, accusing them of copying Moderna's technology in order to make their own vaccine. What do you make of this?
1: I think Americans are going to learn a lot about <clears throat> the vaccines and how they were developed, including a giant head start in terms of time uh you know the ceo of moderna stefan benzel he was the billionaire ceo of biomeru they actually helped build the biosecurity lab in wuhan china and in 2015 after stefan benzel helped the chinese build the wuhan lab he joins moderna and then moderna starts the collaboration with the chinese i think if this patent suit goes forward it's going to backfire on both companies I can tell you head-to-head Uh, They're very different products. Moderna is 100 micrograms of messenger RNA. Pfizer's 30 micrograms. They claim to have the same immunologic response. In head-to-head comparisons, Moderna actually has more safety concerns than Pfizer.
2: Yeah, Dr. Merrick, one of the big things, though, we've seen is there's 11 new billionaires floating around in the pharmaceutical industry since COVID-19. So there's plenty of money to go around, most of it on the back of our tax tax dollars. But, uh, you know, this is going to go on. For a while, we know right now that neither of them were effective in blocking people from getting sick. So, like, what's the big lawsuit about? Yeah, well, you know, maybe this will expose
4: actually what's in these vaccines, because, you know, it's truly astonishing that, you know, billions of people have been vaccinated with a product that we have absolutely no idea what it contains and maybe this will open this Pandora's box. There was a recent study out of Germany which they actually tried to look what was in the vaccine and they found about 15 or 16 elements and minerals in in the vials that were not in the labeling and that were unexplained. So there's a lot of accountability to do. And most
2: importantly, yeah. you know, as Dr. McCulloch knows, these vaccines are neither safe nor are they effective yeah to
4: continue this narrative is misleading it's deceptive it's corrupt and it's evil in fact we now know the more you vaccinated the greater your risk of getting COVID.
3: yeah well and another question right here dr mccullough if we're saying that you have a greater risk of getting COVID if you're being vaccinated. What about your immune system overall when you're getting these vaccines? Could it hinder your own immune system?
1: It's certainly possible. There are papers published in twenty twenty one on immune imprinting. You know, to give a an injection every six months is very unusual, even for vaccines. But these are genetic installations of the obsolete Wuhan spike protein. They may be misdirecting the immune system against an obsolete antigen, and then actually weakening the response when the, when the body does see a real infection, whether it's SARS-CoV-2 or another virus. This is suggested, by the way, in the childhood outbreak of adenovirus hepatitis. It's thought that the spike protein super antigen was in in fact weakening the immune system. I mean, wow. And
2: Dr. Merrick, that, I mean, that's a real problem, no? Oh, absolutely. You know, I must extend what Dr. McCulloch said. Apart from the
4: immune printing, There is some data that the more you vaccinate, the more it impairs your cell mediated immunity, the function of your T cells to function. What does that mean? Well, it means that your immune system is impaired and you're gonna have reactivation of late viruses that were there before. So not only does it increase your risk of getting COVID, it suppresses this data suppresses your immune system. So you're more likely to get other infections and you're more likely to get um, reactivation of native viruses. That so, is, you know, just to be blunt about this, these are not safe and effective. That caused devastation on this planet. And you know, the time has come for us to stop. You know, there's right. nothing, there's no positive side. You know, if there was a benefit to these vaccines in some shape or form, okay. There's
2: yeah. no benefit. It's only doctor, I wish we could Doctor and Doctor, I wish we could talk about this. We
3: have a, a lot, lot more. more we could ask you. Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Paul Merrick, thank you both for joining us this morning.
1: You could tell that Dr. Merrick was going for broke. In fact he called me afterwards and said, Listen, I'm gonna try to get in as much as I possibly can on these vaccines and I told him, Listen, you know, you just gotta keep your answers short for the media pieces, which I had to. Uh, later on that day, I was called uh, to go on Fox News with Dan Bongino, Unfiltered. Dan has recently come out and said, uh, as a cancer patient who's in remission, that taking the COVID-19 vaccines was the worst decision of his life. Let's take a listen into to Dan Bongino and a brief appearance I had on Fox News.
0: Welcome back to Unfiltered. The government all of a sudden seems to be worried about the long-term impact of coronavirus and the impact of the vaccine, because the media is now, as predicted by me, decided to blame Trump. I knew it. The NIH is out with a new study how the immune response to COVID may damage the brain. Scary stuff, right? It's not just the immune response, Dems in the media like liberal reg Politico are ready to blame Trump for everything from COVID treatments to quote, the accelerated timeline of getting the vaccine to the public. I thought that was a good thing. They love the vaccine, right? I thought they did. Joining me now is friend of the show, Dr. Peter McCullough. Doctor, thanks for joining us. What's your take on some of this new data coming out with the vaccine and its link to all cause mort- mortality? Well, you know, we've seen a trend Uh, since the
1: advent of the vaccines, where all-cause mortality, not due to COVID, but due to other conditions has gone up. And it's been an investigation into what is it? Is it more heart disease, cancer, or other causes? Or in fact, are patients actually having a pathway
0: towards death of which the vaccine potentially contributed to? So it's a very active area of investigation. Uh, doctor, my, my second follow-up question. Uh, as I said, I did a viral appearance this week on my podcast. I told people getting the vaccine when I did was a great regret of mine. I had cancer at the time. I wish I would have just waited for some more data, um, but it happened. Is there evidence out there of immune system impairment linked to the vaccine? And, and when are you, can you be confident you're in the clear if you've got the vaccine that you're not going to get any side effects? Is it a year, 18 months? you know papers in 2021 uh you brought out the concept of
1: immune imprinting meaning that the vaccines are giving the body the same antigenic stimulus over and over again every six months so the body's immune system is being directed against an antiquated protein that basically now is obsolete so when you get the real virus the body's actually not ready to defend the real virus. And in fact, that's happened. What we know now is that the uh, messenger RNAs in the body, at least for a few months, spike protein for about a year. And it should take some time to clear it out, probably a year or more. Um, But 85% of people who take the vaccines have no problems whatsoever. About 15% do, according to a recent uh, Zogby survey. So if you're in the 85%, Dan, and you're past a year, you should be good.
0: Doc, you put me at ease there. Right? I really appreciate it. That's why we have you on, actual medical experts on the show. Dr. McCullough, thanks for your time. Thank you.
1: You know, I have to tell you, I really don't know what to tell patients. The worry, and if you can see Dan Boncino's face, uh, you know, he has genuine worry and concern that he has this in his body now. How does he get it out? Is he at risk? And I do think clinically, I've been watching my patients carefully beyond a year. Everything I know, they should be clearing this substance from the body and hopefully no harm, no foul. I do think the majority of people who have no problem with the vaccines are probably getting relatively degraded messenger RNA. Uh, we know the use of multi-use files, the lack of super cooling, all the changes that made have led to almost certainly um, a less viable genetic material being injected in the mass program. Let's hope that's the case. Well, we've got a terrific program for you today. On the backside, on the long program, I have Dr. Asim Malhotra. You're going to love him. I've been wanting to get him on the show. He's from the United Kingdom. He's young. He's handsome. He's dynamic. And he is taking on the medical establishment and the corruption that Big Pharma has injected into the biomedical Complex, and this has been going on for quite some time, particularly in the UK. Mel brings it all out. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. You know, we never eat food specifically to improve our neurologic function, but I tell you, we can take supplements. I have right in front of me right now, Healthy Cell Focus and Recall. It's a combination of uh, uh, nootropics, neurotransmitters, adaptogens, cognitive fuel, and brain blood flow support. It supports focus, recall, mental speed, and rapid learning. Uh, It has uh, really a terrific combination. I want you to um, understand that these major domains focus in neurotransmitters, recall, mental speed, and rapid learning, brain blood flow support, brain cell antioxidant activity, and cognitive fuel and brain energy. Beneath each one of those categories are uh, three or more supplements given in a microgel combination. And it's basically like a packet. If you've ever run a 5k race and they hand you a packet of goo or hammer gel, it's like that except for you pop it and you get an immediate effect. I'm going to pop one now. I can tell you, I've been burning it all day on the computer like you have. And Focus and Recall can help support your neurologic health and bring things into balance. Why not give it a shot? Go to America Out Loud on our platform, hit the banner bar, Healthy Cell, and you can type in the promo code if you need it. It's Out Loud and get a discount off your first order. It comes in a box that will last you a month. I tell people use Healthy Cell every day. Just take it, and the body becomes uh, well adapted, well adjusted, and ready to receive this important micronutrient support. But remember, Healthy Cell. Focus and recall. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough report.
4: Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis,
2: you're ready for anything. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpitone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Copix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Copix Rx banner ad on AmericaOutLoud.com and save 20% by using promo
0: code OUTLOUD.
1: Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I've been waiting for this interview forever. I have to tell you, this has been the most uh, heavily pursued interview uh, since I've started the podcast, and finally, finally, I've got him, Dr. Asim Malhotra from the UK, uh, and I am working, we're working early in the morning uh, here in the United States, uh, in the evening in the United Kingdom. Asim, welcome to the McCullough Report.
5: Peter it's an absolute pleasure and honor.
1: Many of you have seen Dr Malhotra on TV. He's clearly been on the national international uh, TV and a very notable figure in medicine but I want Dr Malhotra to start out by telling us about his educational background and his journey in the UK.
5: Sure thanks Peter. Yes yeah, so I um I grew up in I'm of Indian origin but I grew up in uh, in the UK in in Greater Manchester. Um, my secondary school, and the re- there's a reason I'm mentioning that, it's called Manchester Grammar School, which I'm very proud of. But our motto of the school in Latin is sapere auda, which means dare to be wise. So I think that gave me some grounding to where I am now and what I've been doing. Um, I then went to medical school in Edinburgh in Scotland, which I'm very proud of. And uh, so I qualified in 2001, so I've been a qualified doctor now for well over 20 years. And I subspecialized in cardiology, specifically initially interventional cardiology, which is where I got most of my training. And I then um, decided in the last few years, I shifted more towards prevention uh, because of a number of factors. But one was I realized that we were doing too 20- many Unnecessary procedures in cardiology, but in particular stenting. And most of what we need to do to help transform population health is going to be through prevention. So I focus a lot of my attention on the prevention side. I've become well known as being an obesity, anti obesity activist. I did a lot of work here in the UK uh, on sugar reduction and raising the harms of excess sugar consumption through articles in the BMJ. And um, I've had a number of roles in the last few years in terms of health policy. So I was a trustee of a think tank called the King's Fund, which advises government health policy. I was the youngest member to be appointed to that uh, board of trustees, and I did a six-year term with them. Um, I've had a visiting professorship of evidence-based medicine in, in Brazil, a Brazilian institution, and now I'm also—I've uh, become president of the scientific advisory uh, committee of a charity called the Public Health Collaboration, which essentially brings doctors and patients together with the sole purpose of helping population, uh, improving population health through informing healthy decisions. But a key component of that, of course, is through transparency. And that's something that, as you know, Peter, is greatly lack- lacking at the moment in, in healthcare and in medicine. And just by speaking the truth, um, we can solve so many problems in terms of people's health. And uh, unfortunately, as, as um, Marcia Angel once told me, the former Edisonian Journal of Medicine, the real battle in healthcare we have now is one of truth versus money. So that essentially sums up me and uh, most of my work. Um, I do clinical work still, but a lot of my time is now spent writing, giving lectures, and really being an activist for for better health.
1: Well, you and I have similar and parallel lives. Uh, you know, I did my cardiology training at what's now the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine, and we. Uh, in the 1990s, really ushered in the era of primary angioplasty in acute myocardial infarction. And we published the uh, primary angioplasty in myocardial infarction one and two studies. My first paper I ever published was in the Northern Journal of Medicine with William O'Neill, who's considered the father of modern interventional cardiology. And so I can tell you, uh, something has gone off the rails, and cardiology out of all the fields has has really held the pride of being the most evidence-based, the most uh, committed to randomized trials, the most committed to, um, uh, again, data transparency, getting all the information out there. What happened in the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak, COVID-19
5: crisis to have everything go wrong? It's a great question, Peter. So I think this has been a problem that has been creeping up on us over many, many years. And for me, I try to understand the very root cause of the situation we're in right now, where, you, as you said, very, you alluded to, we've had lack of transparency, lack of informed consent, um, you know, uh, and it's causing great damage to, to trust, and of course, damage to population health in many ways, because we haven't really behaved in an evidence-based way. And my uh, analysis is that essentially, the pharmaceutical industry, there, there's a conflict of interest. So as doctors, our primary interest should always be putting uh, you know, scientific integrity first and patients first. Our duty of care primarily is to patients. The pharmaceutical industry and many big corporations' interest is to make profit for their shareholders. And that's really all they have in terms of legal obligation. They don't have a, um, a legal obligation to give you the best treatment although most people like that to be the case. So what's happened is you have this big corporate entity that has had increasing power, which has become unchecked over many years and probably accelerated from economic policies, I would say in the 1980s from Margaret Thatcher in the UK and uh, her counterpart in the US, Ronald Reagan, these neoliberal economic policies. And what's happened is there's been less regulation and many institutions, politicians are essentially bought. In many ways whether they realize that or not by the drug industry and are slave to their interests and as a result what's happened is um we uh, you know if, if the if the drug industry were doing everything correctly and they were being transparent with their data and the drugs they were producing were actually having a, an overall net effect of benefit then we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. even prior to the rollout of the vaccine and prior to the whole covid pandemic we were already in a huge health crisis in the US, in the UK, and many Western European countries, because of the fact that a lot of the information that doctors are making clinical decisions on has been biased and corrupted by commercial interests. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out. If you are, as a doctor, making clinical decisions on corrupted information, you're either going to get suboptimal outcomes for your patients, or at worst, you're going to cause harm. And for me, that's really at the very root of the problem.
1: I can see. Yes. You know, there's, it's so fundamental and uh, on one of my most recent TV appearances on uh, Laura Ingram on the Ingram Angle, I used the term that the doctors had uh, drank the Kool-Aid. That's an American phrase that we say when uh, you know when doctors, in a sense, have imbibed uh, information. In fact, in this case, many of them have taken COVID-19 vaccines themselves, so they are personally committed to a vaccine program. And they seem to have lost their objectivity. And it's almost as if uh, as if the vaccines represent some type of elixir uh, or that they're representative of, of more than what they are. And it seems like it's incredibly hard for doctors to make a call and saying, you know what, the, they haven't worked out or now I'm concerned regarding safety issues. Uh, you know, I, I walk up and down the halls of a major medical center every day and I don't hear doctors expressing concern Regarding vaccine safety.
5: Yeah, Peter, it's a very good point. And if I was to play devil's advocate and, and try and understand that mindset, I, and to some degree, I was one of those people, Peter, because I was one of the first people to have the uh, I two jabs of Pfizer mRNA vaccine uh, or mRNA product, um, probably more appropriate to describe it, in January 2021. Um, uh, because I helped out in a vaccine centre. So when the first roller happened for the older age groups, I, I had whatever the leftovers. And then I also then helped, was, was asked by Good Morning Britain to help tackle vaccine hesitancy amongst ethnic minority groups. So I went on Good Morning Britain because I convinced a, a well-known film director here who was vaccine hesitant to take the vaccine. And my mindset at the time wasn't so much about being particularly worried about COVID myself, but I had conflated. And this is my lack of knowledge, if you like, because. Cardiologists don't normally take much interest in general in vaccines, but you know, we do realize that, we, that the traditional vaccines, whether it's MMR, whether it's polio, whether it's hep B, smallpox, you know, have had a, a huge beneficial effect. But as somebody who has been a big critic of the pharmaceutical industry going back years, even I was able to deduce that when we look at all the drugs that we prescribe, vaccines are one of the safest and therefore, I had conflated this new technology with traditional vaccines. So I was only a little bit skeptical about efficacy. But one thing, and I'll be honest with you, Peter, I had no concerns at all about safety at all. Uh, if I did, I wouldn't have taken it. And I did. And it's only when evidence and thanks to the work of people like yourself and, and, and reports started coming in um, oh, several months later. And I started critically analyzing the data myself did I realize that this was absolutely nothing like anything we've used before and therefore then felt, well, actually, you know, the evidence from my perspective and evidence that has emerged has changed and then we have to act on the evidence. So that was one thing I would say. I think the other thing in terms of the system failures, why why are cardiologists or other doctors not um, more critical or more skeptical of evidence that's coming through, so-called evidence or um, drugs that are being approved, um, is that. Um, you know John Ioannidis at Stanford, who I describe as being a Stephen Hawking-like figure of medicine, I think he's the most cited medical scientist in the world. He wrote a great paper in 2017 called How to Survive the Medical Misinformation Mess. And he cites four factors behind the fact that, you know, and he says in the US, for example, 20 to 50% of all healthcare activity brings no benefit to patients. And the four factors he says behind this are that much, if not most, of um, clinical research is poor quality and of no benefit to patients. Number two is the reason why the system isn't changing, he says, most doctors, policymakers, patients are not aware of this problem. So if they're not aware of the problem of the poor quality research in which they're making decisions, how are we going to change the system? The third issue is, he says, then that um, even if uh, you know they are aware, they don't have the skills to critically appraise evidence because it's something that's not really drummed into us well in medical school. And finally. Patients then lack the necessary information at the time of clinic, of, of shared decision making to make decisions about what's good and what, or what's bad for them. And those together then are the root causes behind medical misinformation mess. And then you look at the um, so-called seven sins cited by Muir Gray and Gerd Gorenza, who used to be the director of the Max Planck Institute for um, Health Literacy in Berlin. And they talk about, you know, I talk about this epidemic of misinformed doctors and misinformed patients. And the root causes behind that are biased funding of research, so research funded because it's like to be profitable, not beneficial for patients, biased reporting in medical journals, biased reporting in the media. You know, many doctors and patients' opinions on drugs are actually influenced by the media more than they realize. Um, biased patient pamphlets, um, defensive medicine, commercial conflicts of interest, and last but not least, um, Peter, which you know very well, is medical curricula fail to teach doctors how to comprehend and communicate health statistics, and when it comes to COVID risk or when it comes to vaccine benefits or harms, for example, you know, without understanding the numbers involved, doctors and members of the public are, and in particular members of the public, are vulnerable to exploitation of their hopes and anxieties by political and commercial interests. So when you put all of that together, it can help, people can then at least begin to understand why they need to be more skeptical and why the system is actually not working in their favor, it's working against them. It's working for private interests, not for public interest.
1: But Asim, do you think there's some personal psychological aspect of doctors who've taken the vaccine where in a sense they have drunk the Kool-Aid and they personally now have a, a fear-driven uh, resistance to recognizing the
5: dangers of the vaccine? Yeah, I think so. I think it's definitely part of it, Peter. Um, although I'm one of the people that took the vaccine and I'm very open and honest about how my opinion on it changed and why it changed. And I think doctors need to not be afraid to also be in that position. Some of them may think, how can we suddenly go back on what we did before? But you know, we know in medicines, today's truth is tomorrow's folly. You know, medicine, science evolves, information changes and actually it's, it's our duty to make sure we change with evidence because that keeps trust. You know, they may think it's going to uh, damage trust, but it, but it, but it actually has the opposite effect by being open. And honest. I do that. With, I'm sure you do it with your patients all the time. I do it with my patients all the time. If something changes or the information changes, I tell them, this is what we believed at the time and they trust you more because they know you're being honest. But actually, if you don't talk about it and you keep it under the surface, Um, actually you are then part of the problem you're part of the system that suppresses information that's really important to improving patient outcomes so i think doctors probably need to think about that a bit more carefully i think the second aspect um, peter is willful blindness you know and that is people doctors turning a blind eye because in order to feel safe to um, reduce anxiety avoid conflict and protect their prestige so there's again this uh feeling that um, if you say to your patient, listen, I was wrong, or I got this wrong, and this is why, there's almost a feeling that they, doctors feel vulnerable, or they've, they've lost that um, level of authority, if you like. But actually, it, that's, not the, that's not the reality. The reality is actually being open and honest as things change. That's what patients want from their doctors, Peter.
1: And it's true that certainly the virus is mutated. Uh, we've learned a great deal. I think we're approaching 300,000 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on uh, the virus. Clearly, you know, about 10% of them are actually on vaccination. But there, don't you think there's something to the vehemence that doctors push these vaccines? I mean, doctors are not saying, listen, you can consider it. Here's an option. Uh, in the United States, doctors are telling patients, there's some doctors who have told patients, if you don't take the vaccine, I'm discharging you from my practice. I won't deliver your baby. Uh, you can't have a heart transplant unless you take one of the vaccines, have you ever seen such a force that doctors have taken a brand new genetic product uh, out of the box and, and really pushed it with such force on their patients?
5: The way I, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Peter. And it's very, it's a very unfortunate situation to, to be in um, that we have doctors that are um, so indoctrinated that they've lost their objectivity. You know, and what's worse than ignorance, Peter, the illusion of knowledge. So, if they are so vehemently pushing the vaccine, um, they are clearly not acting in a way that they fully understand what they are doing. And this is this is called indoctrination. Um, and um, you know, the this indoctrination is so deep that even educated doctors have lost their objectivity. They I think can, they're being. They actually can, think they're being objective. I can think
1: of th- yeah, I can think of three. Uh, epics in medicine in the last 150 years where there was this indoctrination and it lasted for years. Uh, but the first one is the g- first great cocaine epidemic in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where uh, the leading medicinal agents by Pfizer and Merck and and, and all the papers in New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA, they're all regarding the salutary effects of cocaine. And there were report after report of doctors self-experimenting with cocaine and seeing its physiological effects. And uh, doctors were absolutely, as a profession, were hooked on cocaine. And this went on for several decades. Uh, and then the next one I can think of is tobacco. Doctors were fully engaged in the great uh, tobacco You know, bulge that we had in terms of use. We had up to 80% of adults smoking at one point in time in the United States. Doctors in commercials, uh, in advertisements for smoking. And in the book by Mukherjee, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize, is called The Emperor of of All Maladies. um, He points out that, you know, doctors were so convinced that smoking did not cause lung cancer that the leading doctor who had, uh, the leading surgeon who had done the most research on lung cancer surgery was smoking during the surgeries, taking out the lung cancer. And in the end, he died himself of lung cancer without recognizing that smoking indeed was an etiology for the lung cancer. It took about 40 years since Sir, uh, Sir Austin Bradford Hill, you know, had the, 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 his criteria saying, listen, smoking causes lung cancer. And then the most recent one is actually the opioid epidemic. And it's now been about uh, two decades. And doctors, and in this case, nurses too, fully engaged in the opioid pandemic, the overprescription of opioids, and especially nursing with the fifth vital sign being pain and just driving this opioid use. These three examples, the reason why I point them out is doctors were fully engaged in this. They lasted for years, if not decades, and then finally, yeah. there's some realization at the end, and, and there's many books and movies written on it. And, and here we are, right in the middle of COVID-19, and there are documentaries, there's books, there's all these historical markers being put down. And we have a situation where we're into our third year of the pandemic, and we just wonder, is this one going to be shorter than the prior three?
5: No, oh, absolutely. Uh, the tobacco analogy is, is a perfect one, because... Um, one of the reasons it took so long, I think it was 50 years between the first links between smoking and lung cancer were published in reputed medical journals before any effective regulation was introduced. And that was because of the corporate playbook that, adapt, that big tobacco adopted, which is actually adopted by many other industries still, um, Peter. Uh, and that was, you know, to the way that they avoided this regulation was by planting doubt that cigarettes were harmful, confusing the public. Um, downright denial and and buying the loyalty of scientists and that's what they used, used. I mean the level of denialism I think it was late as uh, even 1999 the CEOs of every major tobacco firm went in front of in front of US Congress and swore under oath they did not believe that nicotine was addictive and smoking caused lung cancer so this is a level so so what do you call this behavior um, Peter, this is, I've I've come up with a new term in my lectures, and it may sound quite controversial, but I'm going to explain it. So, you know, we talk about different determinants of health, social determinants of health, commercial determinants of health. But uh, there's a new term I've, I've suggested in a provocative way, and it's called the psychopathic determinants of health. And the reason I use that term is that in um, Dr. Robert Hare, forensic psychologist, US forensic psychologist uh, in the late eighties actually was behind the original international criteria for diagnosing psychopathy. And in the the documentary, the corporation and the book by Joel Buchanl, professor of the corporation, um, professor uh, Robert Hare actually, defines the behavior of many big industries including pharma with good evidence that the actual entity not the people that was that work within it i'm not going to accuse individuals that work within it i mean i i um i debated the ceo of astrazeneca a few years ago at the cambridge union and the motion was we need more people and more drugs and obviously i was debating against him but we had dinner together he was very friendly um seems like a nice guy i'm sure he is with his friends and family but he's working within a system certainly within a corporation or, a, you know, that system, the big corporation that functions like a psychopath. So what, do, you know, some simple things, deliberate deception to, to, to make money, lying deceit, um, uh, no concern from other people, no empathy. That's how the corporation functions. So if you have these big corporations that this is how, you know, they're there to make money profit for their shareholders, not to give you the best treatment and they have more and more control over our lives. What do you think is going to happen to our mental and physical health? What's going to happen to the culture within medicine? You know, most of universities now get their research funding from the drug companies. It didn't it used to be like that in the 1980s, 1990s. But these economic policies has given them way too much power. And that's, you know, that's probably at the root cause of why we're in the mess that we're in in the world today, certainly in terms of health, because we've given unchecked power to an entity that is anti-human.
1: Well, you clearly, as a, <clears throat> as a leading cardiologist in the UK, in many ways are apostate, right? You haven't gone along with the orthodoxy, and you're pointing out uh, really just such a complex set of relationships that explains a lot of what's going on. Um, have you found yourself targeted? Have you experienced reprisal? <laughs>
5: yeah. I mean, over the years, I have, Peter, on a number of occasions, um, but it's one of the things that I learned early on is that, um, you know, as soon as you're, there's a, there's a professor in Australia called Simon Chapman. He's considered one of the leading campaigners behind tobacco control in Australia. And he wrote a paper about his 10 lessons in public health advocacy. And one of those is uh, grow a rhinoceros hide because soon as, as soon as your work threatens an ideology or an industry, you will be attacked, sometimes unrelentingly and viciously. And I've had a number of occasions because one of the things I've done is, for example, when I was taking on Big Sugar um, uh, is is one of the areas I focused on. I had, um, you know, public smears. I had um, newspaper articles attacking me and going for my credibility. A lot of my medical journal articles there were calls for retraction, they were publicized. So there's all that kind of stuff you have to put up with. Um, but you kind of get used to it over time. And you do have to have a thick skin. And eventually things die down, you move on, you carry on. And you know, you've made progress by speaking the truth. I mean, I, I um, you know, uh, one of the people that I, I listened to a lot recently, I think is a very, um, you know, powerful advocate for the truth is clinical psychologist, Jordan Peterson. And one of, the, one of the things he says, which makes a lot of sense to me, he says, you've got to realize it's not safe to speak the truth, but it's even less safe to not speak the truth. Because if you don't speak the truth, and of course, society functions on people living in a reality and for people to trust each other, we need to have truth. As soon as that disintegrates and society starts to disintegrate, we lose trust in each other. And that's not good for us mentally or physically or good for, a cohesive society that's going to progress in a positive way, certainly from mental and physical health perspective. So, um, for me, I rationalize it rather than being courageous. I say, well, this is about being rational because not speaking the truth means that the situation is only going to get worse and you're going to have much, something much bigger to deal with further down the line. And you're going to regret a few years later. It's like, why didn't I speak out when I had the opportunity to,
1: you know, I can tell you that we've had many debates in our area of medicine over time. And it's always been an engaged debate. I remember primary angioplasty versus thrombolytics. I remember uh, the period of time where there was great controversy over whether lipid-lowering therapy reduced uh, rates of uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And we always debated, we had grand rounds. We used to have all different types of, uh, in a sense, entertaining and fun exchanges. But when it comes to these vaccines, Seem there's no debate. There's never a point counterpoint on vaccine safety or efficacy. It's the first time in my career where it's a closed door, and what the other side says is, I don't want to talk about it.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think we've never experienced anything on this kind of scale, Peter. Um, and I think it's because everybody, in some way, shape, or form, pretty much everybody on this earth has been in some way directly or indirectly affected by the vaccines, whether it's they couldn't travel whether they were coerced into taking it, whether they were, um, whether there was a mandate in their respective countries, we've all been affected by it. And there's huge powerful commercial interests also who are benefiting it. And I'm not undermining necessarily that the vaccine doesn't have an effect. I think that that's still an ongoing debate about how effective it is and what the harms are. But it's naive to not think that there is a huge... Vested interest in ensuring that as many people as possible are vaccinated, whether they need it or not, and we know this, for example, just from the fact that Pfizer have made thirty-seven billion dollars from this vaccine alone. And I think one of my, uh, I think a lot of people would agree with on This, I think, certainly at the beginning, um, you know, why didn't we just? And this is the same for lockdowns as well. Why didn't we just put our resources into protecting the vulnerable, whether that's vaccines or whether it's focused protection for elderly people with COVID or whatever, um, and. But if we look at the vaccine, for example, just thinking about it from an economic perspective, if we had just focused on the vulnerable and say, for example, we'd said, listen, we're just going to offer this vaccine to over 70s because they're the most, most at risk, then Pfizer would have made a fraction of the amount of money that they've made. And for them, that wouldn't have been good enough, not from an economic perspective.
1: But these, pur- these products were pre-purchased. This is interesting. You know, Pfizer had no sales and marketing. They didn't have to cover their development costs. There was an open book, actually. You know, for the f- money flowed from Treasuries to Pfizer or Moderna or Sinovac, Coronavac, uh, uh, elsewhere. There was something very unique about this, that there wasn't any purchase. There wasn't any uh, review. There wasn't any uh, cost effectiveness that came out of it because people weren't paying for it. It was all pre-purchased. And I I agree with you. I think because everyone's been touched by it, they can't dispassionately discuss it. When it was primary angioplasty versus thrombolytics, we could all talk about it because we ourselves weren't under the duress of having an acute myocardial infarction at the time that we're discussing it. But here with these vaccines, everyone feels, I think, uh, under some degree of duress or personal, uh, they have a personal stake in it. And I think it's important to understand that, I, I think the immediate direct emotionality of it in each and every person is making this extraordinarily difficult. I want to ask you another question since this is in your wheelhouse. In the United States, we have Dr. Peter Bregan, who wrote back, wrote uh, Talking Back to Prozac, and he is on the America Out Loud platform now on Pulse and has his own show. Uh, but Peter Bregan, from the very beginning, uh, was it sounds like aligned with you that Big Pharma was so powerful when they came in with the The antidepressive drugs, they essentially wiped out cognitive behavioral therapy as a discipline. And, you know, he was making the case that, listen, these new drugs are okay, but, you know, there's an established discipline in psychiatry that's, in a sense, being wiped out by this big pharmaceutical agenda. And, uh, you know, he quickly was uh, attacked and canceled. He used to be on all the major talk shows, and he watched this happen and now with the covid-19 vaccines his new book is called covid-19 uh, and the and the global predators we are the prey you know he lines he has over 1100 citations and really lays out what the agenda is and and what is going on with a timeline and he says that this is in a sense now the same playbook on a much larger level interestingly he's recently attacked Uh, Matthias Desmet, clinical psychologist at University of Ghent, on the issue of mass formation, which mass formation is psychosis, you use the term, I I think, kind of a psychotic, a similar term. Many of us have subscribed to that this mass formation appears to be what's going on. What are your views regarding uh, the direct nefarious nature of big pharma, which Bregan points out and then mass formation as this group um, psychophenomenon that happens.
5: Yeah, I think it's very much intertwined, um, Peter, as well, because what, what's also happened, which is unusual, you say. normally we have debates about thrombolysis or primary angioplasty. We're not allowed in some ways to have a debate, or we haven't been allowed to have a debate about the vaccine safety and efficacy, um, is because they've, they've captured the narrative they haven't you know and and the one of the ways that they've captured this narrative that this is safe and effective everybody should have it and we we actually need to you know almost look at people who are not doing what we're doing i.e., taking the vaccine with contempt and that you know they created this polarization deliberately i think that was that was um all driven and fueled by the pr machinery of pharma you know i think they knew exactly what they were doing and w- the most important so how do we well how do we overcome this how do we how do we wind back from these harms um with from willful blindness it's with facts but getting those facts out disseminating it to the public uh, the the biggest challenge and the most important platform historically has been mainstream media now social media has a role but it's still not as powerful as mainstream media and unfortunately they've also been able to capture mainstream media i think uh, if i remember correctly 80% um, of uh, broadcast media uh, and print media in the us is owned by seven corporations so it, it becomes much more difficult for people to really get to the truth when the information they're receiving uh, and they are believing in and trusting is distorted uh, and that's the challenge that we have but you know people like yourself peter and and these sorts of conversations and through social media and getting stuff on uh, on on broadcast media channels like fox definitely although you know i'm not somebody that normally would ascribed to Fox News, but right now, to be honest, the irony of all of this is uh, of, of the, you know, and I'm traditionally, you know, as, a, as a, a, an NHS campaigner, you know, my views are probably slightly left of centre. If I was in the US, for example, although I don't, you know, I'm not political, but I'm more aligned probably with democratic views, but it's interesting how in this particular pandemic, um, the the actual, when, when it comes to the, what's a more um, balanced discussion about the vaccine or about lockdowns has actually come from the right-wing media, which I think is really interesting. Um, but, you know, I'm for the truth no matter who tells it, you know, to, to paraphrase Malcolm X. I think, and I think, I mean, uh, you know, you yeah. and I are very, very
1: similar. I, t- I consider myself a, polit- a political moderate. I voted on both sides of the ticket before. Interestingly, when I testified in the U.S. Senate in 2020, there was a vicious uh, op-ed that came out in the New York Times written by the Minority Witness, Accusing myself and my panel members, Dr. Rish and Fareed, as being Trumpians, as being uh, Trump supporters. And I never characterized myself that way. You're right. So the extreme right and the extreme left appear not to apply these terms, don't apply anymore. And we have a interesting duo in the United States is we have you know, former hardcore right winger Steve Bannon, who was a White House advisor to Trump going on with liberal CNN commentator, Naomi Wolf, and they're teaming up and uh, reviewing pandemic response, particularly the Pfizer dossier, which has come out and is, you know, just incriminating is everything you've said. Uh, But we have a situation where many times people come up to us and they will ask us, what can we do as individuals? What can we do as individuals? And uh, you know, my, suggestion, my constructive suggestion, because I do think the doctors are at the center of this. If the doctors actually tomorrow all said, you know what, the vaccine uh, safety is, is is not acceptable and their efficacy is, is not worth the risk, this whole thing would die tomorrow. The doctors came out and did this. We've got a million doctors in the United States, half a million nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Texas A&M survey recently, confidentially, 10% of doctors don't think the vaccines are safe and effective. Tiny fraction have the courage to speak out about it. Uh, More nurses actually express concerns than doctors. What I tell people, lay people, is go visit your doctor. Go visit your doctor. And then if it's not brought up, ask the doctor, should I take a COVID-19 vaccine? And when the doctor says yes, then respond to it by saying, you know what, I, I don't think they're safe enough for me. And just leave it there. Don't argue the data. If the doctor says, oh, well, they're safe, they're safe. Say, well, so it may be safe enough for you, doctor, but it's not, it doesn't meet my threshold of, of being safe. And if doctors heard that patient after patient after patient, you know what, seemed I, as a cardiologist, as a non inventional cardiologist, I have patients all day long fight me on statins. They tell me they're not safe enough. So patients have no problem expressing concerns over statin safety but yet I've never met a single patient who's actually expressed a concern regarding the safety of the vaccines. They feel as if the doctor has taken an authority position. They can't wait to get out of the office and they seek another doctor. And I tell them, listen, that's not solving the problem. There's too few doctors to take on a third of America who doesn't want any more vaccines. The patients are going to have to give some dispassionate, but you know constructive feedback to the doctors. What do you think about that?
5: No, I'm with you completely. I, I think doctors, I think patients um, probably have a lot more power and influence than they realize, certainly other doctors. So they have to speak their mind. We have we, Our duty is to listen to our patients and engaged in, engage in in shared decision making. That's what we should be doing. So I 100%, I think that's uh, really important. With anything, with any drug, you know, patients need to ask. We need to help and encourage them to ask the right questions. You know, uh, there's a Choosing Wisely campaign that started in Canada that we picked up here in the UK. I was the lead author in a paper which was a collaboration between the BMJ and the medical colleges. And uh, you know, there were a number of important questions that we encourage patients to ask. So do I really need this drug test or procedure? Um, what are the risks? What happens if I do nothing? What are the alternatives? So these are the kind of questions that we need patients to be, also, uh, to be asking doctors all the time. But I, you're absolutely 100% right, Peter, that if the medical profession themselves, we have so much influence and power more than we realize, we still have a lot of trust. Uh, I know in the U.S., I think nurses are the most trusted of all professions. Doctors, I think, uh, you know, as, as the system became a bit more commercialized, I think that the trust declined um, slightly, but they're still very trusted. Certainly, so the U.K., doctors are the most trusted of all professions. So, you know, and it's our duty and responsibility to do the best for our patients. If we stood up and say, listen, um, we are really concerned here about the safety, we want to investigate it, um, then of course things will happen. But um, many doctors themselves, as they say, they don't understand the system failures. Um, and, uh, they are getting, you know, this may, you may find this slightly amusing, but I, I spoke at the British medical association annual conference at a fringe meeting, the annual conference a few weeks ago, and there were very senior members of the British medical Association there, the chair of the BMA, the president of the BMA, I won't name, let's say one of the very most senior members when I was giving a talk, a lecture, it was called "The corporate capture of medicine and public health. And I got onto the regulator. And I talked about the fact that 86% of the funding of the regulators come through. You have the FDA in the U S we have something called the MHRA over here comes from pharma and this senior NHS leader who's been involved in advocating for vaccines or whatever else on TV, et cetera, couldn't believe, didn't believe it. He actually didn't believe it. And then obviously that was then, you know, the BMJ exposed it a few weeks later, but he, he was shocked. So very senior people that we think, um, should understand the evidence, don't, are not critically appraising the data. So let's, let's assume the best in the sense that I still think most doctors want to do, that they're in the job because they want to help patients, want to do the right thing. But the reason that they are, un, they are un, at times unwittingly causing harm to patients is because they don't realise that the information they are getting has been corrupted when it comes to clinical decision making. Wow.
1: That is really a bombshell. They really don't know. They really don't know. Well, this has been a wonderful interview. What What else big do you have coming? We see you on national TV in the UK. I think you're actually the, the most visible physician in the UK. Some have said, uh, you know, I have a similar role or myself or Jay Bhattacharya or or Scott Atlas or Harvey Risch or Robert Malone. You know, there's, there's like a team in the United States that um, it's not just Fox News. I have Newsmax and ABC and um, OAN. I've been on almost all the big stations. I should be on CNN. Uh, and, you know, I previously was a big CNN watcher, MSNBC. Uh, and I anticipate uh, if we navigate correctly and dispassionately and, and apolitically and just keep on message. And that's what I do. I think Americans view us collectively as reasonable doctors. And as things continue to evolve, they see the unreasonableness of things. They see the unreasonableness of forcing a vaccine in somebody in the military who's already had a blood clot uh, to take a thrombogenic shot. They see the unreasonableness of a heart transplant and heart failure who just can't risk any degree of myocarditis, while they're waiting for a heart transplant, uh, the, the, the public sees the unreasonableness of this, um, and and I think yeah. sentiment continues. There's only there's, public sentiment is only changing in one direction, and that is towards medical freedom.
5: Absolutely, Peter, hundred percent. And you know, it's thanks to people like you, I remember listening, um, you know, very carefully to your interview with Joe Rogan, which I think was game changing, and and that had a huge reach, and I, I have no doubt had a massive impact, and. Uh, and continues to have impact. But I think you're right. The direction is going one way and people are becoming better informed. And um, you know, I I believe in the uh, intrinsic goodness of human beings. People want to do the right thing. People want the truth. And people hate injustice, Peter. People hate injustice. And one of my inspirations is Mahatma Gandhi. And one of the things that that he taught us or he taught me, and, and when you want to create a revolution, what do you do? make the injustice visible so we need to keep making these injustices visible for our patients and I have hope that eventually this bubble of unchecked power of an entity that has is out of control for the purposes of just extracting as much money as as they can from the public for their private interests I think that bubble will burst soon and we can rebuild we can build bridges and we can transform the system so that we have you know healthier uh, and better informed uh, and happier people and communities.
1: Well, I'll let that eloquent set of words be the last ones for this interview. Thank you so much for joining us on The McCullough Report.
5: Thank you, Peter. An absolute pleasure.
1: Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is The McCullough Report.